If you followed any news from the local sports scene recently, you've likely heard about events from the University of Miami. They made a coaching change in their football program, firing previous coach Manny Diaz and replacing him with Mario Cristobal. Cristobal, most recently of the University of Oregon, played at the University of Miami from 1989 to 1992, winning two national championships and serving as a graduate assistant and assistant coach between then and now. He also made his head coaching debut at Florida International University from 2007 to 2012, becoming the first Cuban-American head coach in major college football. But while this was the major story, there was a second story that emerged at the same time that grabbed a lot of headlines and attention. And all this news coming as a billionaire school booster is pushing his plan to build a brand new stadium near the Coral Gables campus. But not everyone is thrilled with that idea. That reaction there at the end from WPLG's Christy Krueger of Local 10 might be a bit of an understatement. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. To do it on the Coral Gables High School campus just makes no sense to me. That was former University of Miami president and Congresswoman Donna Shalala. Not a fan. Former Coral Gables Mayor Raul Valdez Fowley, count him out. We don't want the stadium in the middle of Coral Gables with the traffic it's going to generate, the noise it's going to generate, and it would have to go in the middle of a residential area. Perhaps the sharpest and funniest criticism was doled out by Miami documentarian and public affairs gadfly Billy Corbin in his appearance on the Dan Lebetard show with Stu Gotts earlier this month. The idea that the media, without any skepticism, repeated some late night rantings and ravings is the reason why our democracy is in peril. The idea that you would just repeat nonsense, nonsense. I mean, it is more likely that Elon Musk will build University of Miami, a stadium on Mars, than a stadium will be built on top of a public high school at one of the busiest intersections in Coral Gables. The man who made the pitch... Miami-based lawyer and entrepreneur John Ruiz defends the plan and has taken additional steps to support his idea of a stadium closer to the University of Miami's campus since that first social media post in early December. What we originally were thinking of at the Coral Gable Senior High, it's 25 acres, that we would improve the school, we would improve the technology, we would get them better baseball fields, better football fields, and at the same time be able to fit in a state-of-the-art stadium that would be part of Coral Gables that people could walk to from the University of Miami. And that's really what you see in these college towns that makes things work. So as it pertains to the Coral Gables Senior High, that was just one of the locations we were looking at. I spent one year as the beat writer for the Miami Hurricane covering University of Miami football. In that year, the school announced that they were leaving the Orange Bowl and heading to what is now Hard Rock Stadium. The most absolute truth I learned in that year is that the city of Coral Gables will never, ever, ever approve any kind of stadium to be built for the University of Miami for the purpose of playing football. For all the reasons you heard former Mayor Valdez Fowley explain and more, the city has no great inclination to build a stadium. After all, the university plays football at Hard Rock Stadium and has since 2008, and before that it played in the city of Miami since the 1930s. It's just not part of the city's plan going forward. While Coral Gables is a city, it really thinks of itself as a community and a kind of historic preserve for a vision established by city founder George Merrick in the 1920s. For most elected politicians in the city and historic preservationists in the community, 
A stadium just doesn't fit that vision. But what if they're wrong? What if George Merrick would have supported a college football stadium in Coral Gables? What if a college football stadium would have fit the vision he had in mind? Well, that's a heck of a what if. How could we ever know if he would have liked the idea of a college football stadium in the city? Well, we do know. Because in 1926, there wasn't a college football stadium in Coral Gables. There were two. And one of them hosted an exhibition the likes of which the country had never seen before. Today. This day in Miami history. January 1st, 1926. The day that the national champions of Princeton University faced off against the four horsemen of Notre Dame at Coral Gables Stadium. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow. I could really use Current. (laughs) I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Save big money on your outdoor project now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. One of my favorite South Florida history things to get lost in and geek out on is a website hosted by FIU. It features historic photos from the United States Coast and Geodetic Survey an organization that defines and manages a coordinate system for the United States. It's now just known as the National Geodetic Survey. I like to think of it as Google Earth 1.0. The website, which you can find a link to in the notes for this show, is very simple. It features a satellite map of South Florida and a bunch of little dots. And the little dots correspond to photos taken from aircraft at particular locations. So. If you want to see what downtown Miami looked like from the air in 1924, you can do that. And if you want to see what Coral Gables looked like from the air in 1928, you can do that too. That's of particular relevance to this topic. Because if you know where to look, and you have a little time, you can find exactly where the two football stadiums were located in the city during the mid to late 1920s. One is relatively easy to find. It was known then as University Stadium, and it was basically the beginning point of a much grander plan to build a college football stadium on the campus of the University of Miami. In the beginning, though, it was basically an open field with a few bleachers. 
capable of hosting a few thousand fans, nothing to sneeze at for a fledgling university, but still not exactly the kind of modern football palace you might imagine today. What's on the location now? Cobb Stadium, the home of the University of Miami women's soccer team. But that stadium actually isn't the subject of our discussion today. While it would host college football games in Coral Gables in the 1920s, the first game there wouldn't take place until the fall of 1926. No, our focus today is on a different stadium. A much more complicated stadium to find. A stadium that was a center of cultural and civic activity in Coral Gables for a number of years, and then almost just as quickly, literally and figuratively, fell off the map. But if you know where to find the Douglas entrance in this picture and then take Douglas Road just a little bit to the south, you'll notice a square of land. That square of land appears to have some sort of edifice constructed, providing some sort of shadow, and a rather noticeable rectangle of land surrounded by what appears to be elevated grass. That lot of land, where today a Publix and Phillips Park is located, was the home of Coral Gables Stadium. The story arc of the Coral Gable Stadium is really fascinating. It was first publicly shared on March 14, 1924, in advertisements published in the Miami Herald and the Miami News Metropolis. The advertisement, which provides the cover image for today's episode, features a drawing by H. George Fink, an architect responsible for much of Coral Gables' Mediterranean and Riviera-style architecture. It appears quite impressive, It's laid out for baseball, with an obvious infield and a very deep outfield, with room for seats all around the field until you get to the furthest reaches of the park away from home plate. There it kind of flattens out, and there's a big entrance gate and what appears to be a fountain. If you have ever seen New York City's polo grounds, it kind of looks something like that. The text of the copy, certainly approved by George Merrick, goes into more detail. The stadium will be 700 feet long, 400 feet wide, and 40 feet high, with a seating capacity of 10,000. Ample facilities will be provided for a baseball diamond and football field, also a running track and apparatus for all athletic contests. To enlarge the scope and appeal of the stadium, a permanent stage will be erected outside of the walls for open-air theatrical productions, and a portable stage inside will also be provided. The crowning feature of the stadium will be the open-air loggia, extending entirely around the amphitheater, adding architectural beauty to the structure and a most enjoyable point of advantage for those who attend large events. Certainly doesn't sound like a city much concerned with traffic. The advertisement said that construction would begin on the stadium in that year, in 1924. In reality, work on the stadium site didn't begin until June of 1925, and construction of the actual edifice didn't begin until September. 1925. But that didn't stop the city and its spiritual leader, George Merrick, from taking big swings. First, a plan to relocate the Coral Gables Society Horse Show. Second, a plan to launch an all-star collegiate basketball team to bring other college basketball teams to South Florida and play at the stadium. Third, an offer to Miami High School that if the Stingarees could win a state football championship, George Merrick would bring another team from around the country to contest a mythical high school national championship at the stadium in the winter. 
And all of that was within about two weeks, from the end of September 1925 to the beginning of October 1925. And remember, building of the stadium had just begun. But the crowning achievement was shared in the pages of the Miami Herald on October 15, 1925, when it was announced that members of the 1922 Princeton Tigers, that year's national champions, would face off against the four horsemen of Notre Dame. The Tigers, who were the first team known as a, quote, team of destiny, having been given the nickname by famed sports writer Grantland Rice, were quite an attraction on their own. But the 1924 Notre Dame Fighting Irish were something entirely different. They also gained their nickname, thanks to Rice. After the team's defeat of Army in 1924 at Yankee Stadium in New York, he wrote, Outlined against a blue-gray October sky, the four horsemen rode again. In dramatic lore, they are known as famine, pestilence, destruction, and death. These are only aliases. Their real names are Stooldrayer, Miller, Crowley, and Layden. At a time where the idea of sports impacting pop culture and general consciousness was really only emerging for the first time, Harry Stooldrayer, Don Miller, Jim Crowley, and Elmer Layden four backs for that Notre Dame football team, cracked that consciousness and became nationwide stars. They, along with their charismatic coach Newt Rockney, are really responsible for the Notre Dame football program we know today. Before that, it was just a small Catholic school in the middle of nowhere, Indiana. With their national championship win in 1924, they were firmly on the college football map and would stay there until the modern day. It's really important to remember something. While we now think of the National Football League as the dominant sports league in America, and college football as a more provincial sport, in the 1920s, college football was the dominant form of the game, and pro football was in its absolute infancy. It was looked down on as a second-class kind of sport. You made your bones in the college game, and then when you graduated, maybe you would play pro-level football, for a team most people wouldn't follow, and then you would go on to coach at the high school or college level. One of the things that helped advance professional football in the United States was barnstorming. College players, after their college days, would join together and play across the country in exhibition. Coral Gables Stadium would wind up hosting two of these exhibitions in the winter of 1925-1926. The first would actually be announced a month after the Notre Dame-Princeton game announcement in October 1925, but would take place before that game. Christmas Day, Harold Red Grange, known as the Galloping Ghost of Illinois, and a team of collegiate all-stars would come to Coral Gables to play the Coral Gables Collegians. Not at all associated with the University of Miami, because the university wouldn't open up for nine more months but another collection of collegiate all-stars to face off in front of Coral Gables visitors and residents. Now, in contrast to the Princeton-Notre Dame game, these were not two teams reconstructed for the purpose of competition. This was a pure exhibition, and pure exhibition meant straight cash. Grange and his attorney got $30,000 from the city of Coral Gables just for showing up and bringing the team. And what that meant is that tickets were going to be incredibly expensive. The get-in price was $5.50, which, adjusted for inflation today, 
would cost approximately $86. The game was a financial success for Grange, but was a failure for Coral Gables. The stadium was only half full, only completed two days before kickoff, and generally left people wanting more. The perfect setup for the New Year's Day showdown between Princeton and Notre Dame. The game was part of an overall celebration known as the Fiesta of the American Tropics, thought of as a response to Pasadena's Tournament of Roses Parade and Rose Bowl game, the fiesta was a celebration of South Florida. The three-day schedule of events included, among other things, multiple parades, multiple banquets, a golf match featuring golf legends Bobby Jones and Gene Saranzen, and, of course, our football game. Three glorious days of carnival revel, as the official proclamation called it, that appeared in the Miami Tribune on December 3rd, 1925. So on Friday, December 18th, 1925, the 1924 National Champions of Notre Dame rolled in to Coral Gables aboard the Dixie Limited, ready for two weeks of activities, social engagements, practice, and football. While the collection of Tiger talent laid low, members of the Notre Dame squad enjoyed some celebration while they were in town. Members of the Hollywood Golf and Country Club, in conjunction with members of the Notre Dame Club of Miami, hosted a banquet for the players at the club on Christmas Eve. Beforehand, a short scrimmage provided the pre-dinner entertainment. But the true focus of events would be the showdown on New Year's Day. It's really important to put the event in context. Yes, it was a little bit imperfect, with the stadium kind of thrown together at the last minute. But Coral Gables didn't really exist as a city as of 1920. In just about five years' time, it would host one of the biggest sporting events of the year, featuring two teams that had won national championships in the decade, refereed by John William Heisman. Yes, that Heisman, who had won a national championship with Georgia Tech and would eventually be the namesake of college football's highest award. Now, with all this pomp and circumstance, what actually happened in the game? Well, the answer is it looked like a lot of games in college football in the 19-teens and 20s. It was a low-scoring affair. I've yet to find any film of the game, unfortunately, but there is actually a remarkable description of the play-by-play in the Miami Herald from the next day, January 2nd, 1926. I'll mention this later, but I do encourage you to follow uh, This Day Miami Pod on social media, on Facebook and Twitter. I'll be sharing the drive chart, and you can actually see it for yourself there. But when you take a look at the details, you can see the first half was a very slow defensive affair. A lot of punting, not a lot of snaps in opponent territory. The second half, however, begins to pick up a little bit, and it picks up because of turnovers. There are a number of interceptions in the second half, three to be exact. Focusing in on the fourth quarter, as that's really where the action is, there are two Notre Dame passes intercepted by Princeton that eventually see them have the ball in Notre Dame territory, normally an opportunity for points to finally be scored. There was just one problem. Stan Keck, considered a captain of the team, had already missed two field goal attempts, and so Princeton was determined to go and score a touchdown. On Princeton's first drive after the first interception of the fourth quarter, John P. Gorman had a fourth and two and couldn't convert, and in fact fumbled, allowing Notre Dame to recover. 
After the second interception of Notre Dame by Princeton, they found themselves at the exact same spot they were in the previous drive, Notre Dame's 40-yard line. This time, they went backwards, losing six yards on first down and eventually having to punt to Notre Dame, attempting to pin them back on their own 19-yard line. Time was running down. The unstoppable force and the unmovable object were stuck at 0-0. And then the drive happened. A 15-play drive that took up most of the fourth quarter. Even though the team was known as the Four Horsemen and the Seven Mules, that Notre Dame team had talent across the field. And of the four main players, only Harry Stuhldreher prominently featured in the fourth quarter for Notre Dame. But boy, did he ever feature. Running and throwing, he led the attack. But it was also up to William Redmar, Chet Wynn, and Eddie Anderson to run and attack the Princeton defense and finally get the ball to the one-inch line. The Fighting Irish fed Chet Wynn twice, attempting to get him through the center of the offensive line, but Princeton turned them away. And finally, on third down, it was Harry Stuhldreher, one of the four horsemen, that got the additional inch that plunged the football across the line and sealed the victory for Notre Dame. The excitement from fans was remarkable. If they were sitting in higher quality seats with cushions, they threw them up into the air. Fans on the ends stormed the field, even though there was technically still 10 seconds left on the clock. Ultimately, the field would be cleared, an extra point attempt would be made, and failed. And Princeton would receive a kickoff that wouldn't go anywhere. The game was over. The 1924 national champions the four horsemen and the seven mules, had defeated the 1922 Princeton Tigers in front of an enthralled crowd at Coral Gable Stadium. Ultimately, the exhibition would not be the biggest sports story of the day nationwide. On that same day, in the 1926 Rose Bowl, Alabama defeated Washington 20-19, allowing the Crimson Tide to claim their first national championship in a game that came to be known as the Game That Changed the South. It's obvious in hindsight that this significant exhibition for Coral Gables wouldn't have the kind of lasting power that its organizers would have hoped. The Great Miami Hurricane would hit the city in September of 1926. The Great Depression would effectively begin in Miami at that point, but would eventually grip the nation by the end of the 1920s and into the 1930s. And the hope of this time in Coral Gables would never be fully fulfilled. But it's also unquestionably true that the Fiesta of the American Tropics beget the Festival of Palms in 1933 and 1934. And the Festival of Palms beget the Orange Bowl Festival, started in 1935. More even than the University of Miami or the Miami Dolphins, the Orange Bowl game and the Orange Bowl parade and the Orange Bowl festival made Miami a center of the football world, really beginning in the 1940s and 50s. And that would have never happened without the Festival of the American Tropics, without the Four Horsemen, and without Coral Gable Stadium. As a devotee of history, I think it's really important for communities to always take opportunities to preserve their historic identity. And sometimes that means restricting opportunities for growth. But it's also true that Coral Gables was not a community dead set on preserving the past when it was founded. It had a vision, and it had an architectural style, but it absolutely had an eye to the future. 
and saw that a larger stadium could be part of the City Beautiful. First off, I want to thank you for listening. Second off, I want to wish you a very happy new year, and I hope you've enjoyed your holiday season thus far. I have to admit this is uh, very much a, a personal passion project. As I've said before, I'm a fan of the University of Miami and its football team and its everything else. And so the discussion of a stadium, Coral Gables, is of particular relevance to me. But discovering this game, as I did really within the last few weeks and months, uh, I found fascinating because it unquestionably should be a larger part of Miami sports history discussion. Uh, It was a big deal, and it remains a big deal. Again, thank you so much for listening. I will tell you the normal reminders. Please make sure you subscribe to This Day in Miami History on your preferred podcast provider. For most folks, I know that's Apple Podcast but you could be using Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, any or all of the above. Uh, Please make sure you subscribe. And if you've subscribed because you like it, take a couple more seconds and leave a review, Uh, especially if it's a five-star review. I'll really appreciate that. If you have feedback for the show, uh, if you have ideas for the show, or if you think there's something I could be doing better, uh, please contact me at uh, thisdaymiamipod at gmail.com or... Here's another call to action. Find us on social media at This Day Miami Pod on Twitter and Facebook.com slash This Day Miami Pod. Uh, follow us. Uh, you'll always get updated with new episodes and additional context and tidbits. Remember, the play by play map of the Princeton and Notre Dame game will be shared on there uh, on either January 1st or 2nd. So be sure to check back and actually see how the game was drawn out in the pages of the Miami Herald on January 2nd, 1926. I'll remind you, you can visit thisdaymiamipod.com for an RSS link to the show, as well as some additional information as well. Um, Starting to build up a pretty significant library of important events in Miami's history. Uh, We go all the way back to March, which means now we have officially 11 episodes to refer back to, as well as a bonus episode uh, in which we got additional information about the Miami Metro Rail and other juicy bits about Miami politics from former county commissioner Charles Dussault. So there's a lot of audio for you to check out, and I encourage you to do so. Uh, We'll be circling back around to March in, you know, only about three months now. So if you want to wait until then and kind of catch up with everything as it comes along, you can do that as well. Um, I guess that'll do it for us today. Again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the show. And until next time, I've been Matthew Bunch. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.